Chapters fifty five and fifty six of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter fifty five. A hunting ramble with Zeke. At the foot of the mountain, a steep path went up among rocks and clefts, mantled with verdure. Here and there were green gulfs, down which it made one giddy to peep. At last we gained an overhanging wooded shelf of land, which crowned the heights, and along this the path, well shaded, ran like a gallery. In every direction the scenery was enchanting. There was a low rustling breeze, and below, in the vale, the leaves were quivering. The sea lay, blue and serene, in the distance, and inland the surface swelled up, ridge after ridge, and peak upon peak, all bathed in the Indian haze of the tropics, and dreamy to look upon. Still valleys, leagues away, reposed in the deep shadows of the mountains, and here and there waterfalls lifted up their voices in the solitude. High above all, and central, the marling spike lifted its finger. Upon the hillsides, small groups of bullocks were seen, some quietly browsing, others slowly winding into the valleys. We went on, directing our course for a slope of the hills a mile or two further, where the nearest bullocks were seen. We were cautious in keeping to windward of them, their sense of smell and hearing being, like those of all wild creatures, exceedingly acute. As there was no knowing that we might not surprise some other kind of game in the coverts through which we were passing, we crept along warily. The wild hogs of the island are uncommonly fierce and as they often attack the natives, I could not help following Tonoi's example of once in a while peeping in under the foliage. Frequent retrospective glances, also, served to assure me that our retreat was not cut off. As we rounded a clump of bushes, a noise behind them, like the crackling of dry branches, broke the stillness. In an instant, Tonoi's hand was on a bow, ready for a spring, and Zeke's finger touched the trigger of his piece. Again the stillness was broken, and thinking it high time to get ready, I brought my musket to my shoulder. "'Look sharp!' cried the Yankee, and dropping on one knee he brushed the twigs aside. Presently off went his piece, and with a wild snort, a black, bristling boar, his cherry red lip curled up by two glittering tusks, dashed unharmed across the path, and crashed through the opposite thicket. I saluted him with a charge as he disappeared, but not the slightest notice was taken of the civility. By this time Tonoi, the illustrious descendant of the bishops of Imeo, was twenty feet from the ground. Aramai, come down, you old fool! cried the Yankee. The pesky critters on t'other side of the island afore this. I rather guess, he continued as we began reloading, that we've spoiled sport by firing at that air tarnal hog. Them bullocks heard the racket, and is flinging their tails about now on the keen jump. Quick, Paul, and let's climb that rock yonder, and see if so be there's any in sight. But none were to be seen, except at such a distance that they looked like ants. As evening was now at hand, my companion proposed our returning home forthwith, and then after a sound night's rest, starting in the morning upon a good day's hunt with the whole force of the plantation. Following another path, in descending into the valley, 
we passed through some nobly wooded land on the face of the mountain. One variety of tree particularly attracted my attention. The black mossy stem, over seventy feet high, was perfectly branchless for many feet above the ground, when it shot out in broad boughs laden with lustrous leaves of the deepest green. And all round the lower part of the trunk, thin slab-like buttresses of bark, perfectly smooth, and radiating from a common centre, projected along the ground for at least two yards. From below, these natural props tapered upward until gradually blended with the trunk itself. There were signs of the wild cattle having sheltered themselves behind them. Zeke called this the canoe tree, as in old times it supplied the navies of the kings of Tahiti. For canoe building, the wood is still used. Being extremely dense and impervious to worms, it is very durable. Emerging from the forest, when halfway down the hillside we came upon an open space, covered with ferns and grass, over which a few lonely trees were casting long shadows in the setting sun. Here a piece of ground some hundred feet square, covered with weeds and brambles, and sounding hollow to the tread, was enclosed by a ruinous wall of stones. Tonoi said it was an almost forgotten burial place of great antiquity, where no one had been interred since the islanders had been Christians. Sealed up in dry, deep vaults, many a dead heathen was lying there. Curious to prove the old man's statement, I was anxious to get a peep at the catacombs. But, hermetically overgrown with vegetation as they were, no aperture was visible. Before gaining the level of the valley, we passed by the site of a village, near a watercourse, long since deserted. There was nothing but stone walls, and rude, dismantled foundations of houses, constructed of the same material. Large trees and brushwood were growing rankly among them. I asked Tonoi how long it was since anyone had lived here. Me, Tamari, boy, plenty Kanaker, men, Martair, he replied. Now only poor Pehe Kanaka, fisherman, left. Me born here. Going down the valley, vegetation of every kind presented a different aspect from that of the high land. Chief among the trees of the plain on this island is the Ati, large and lofty, with a massive trunk, and broad, laurel-shaped leaves. The wood is splendid. In Tahiti, I was shown a narrow, polished plank, fit to make a cabinet for a king taken from the heart of the tree, it was of a deep, rich scarlet, traced with yellow veins, and in some places clouded with hazel. In the same grove with the regal ati, you may see the beautiful flowering hotu, its pyramid of shining leaves diversified with numberless small, white blossoms. Planted with trees as the valley is, almost throughout its entire length, I was astonished to observe so very few which were useful to the natives. Not one in a hundred was a coconut or breadfruit tree. But here Tonoi again enlightened me. In the sanguinary religious hostilities which ensued upon the conversion to Christianity of the first Pomeroy, a war party from Tahiti destroyed, by girdling the bark, entire groves of these invaluable trees. For some time afterward, they stood stark and leafless in the sun sad monuments of the fate which befell the inhabitants of the valley. Chapter 56. Mosquitoes. The night following the hunting trip, Long Ghost and myself, after a valiant defense, 
had to fly the house on account of the mosquitoes. And here I cannot avoid relating a story, rife among the natives, concerning the manner in which these insects were introduced upon the island. Some years previous, a whaling captain, touching at an adjoining bay, got into difficulty with its inhabitants, and at last carried his complaint before one of the native tribunals. But receiving no satisfaction, and deeming himself aggrieved, he resolved upon taking signal revenge. One night, he towed a rotten old water-cask ashore, and left it in a neglected taro-patch, where the ground was warm and moist. Hence the mosquitoes. I tried my best to learn the name of this man, and hereby do what I can to hand it down to posterity. It was Coleman, Nathan Coleman. The ship belonged to Nantucket. When tormented by the mosquitoes, I found much relief in coupling the word Coleman with another of one syllable, and pronouncing them together energetically. The doctor suggested a walk to the beach, where there was a long, low shed tumbling to pieces, but open lengthwise to a current of air, which he thought might keep off the mosquitoes. So thither we went. The ruin partially sheltered a relic of times gone by, which, a few days after, we examined with much curiosity. It was an old war-canoe, crumbling to dust. Being supported by the same rude blocks upon which, apparently, it had years before been hollowed out, in all probability it had never been afloat. Outside, it seemed originally stained of a green color, which, here and there, was now changed into a dingy purple. The prow terminated in a high, blunt peak. Both sides were covered with carving, and upon the stern was something which Longost maintained to be the arms of the royal house of Pomery. The device had a heraldic look, certainly, being two sharks with the talons of hawks clawing a knot left projecting from the wood. The canoe was at least forty feet long, about two wide, and four deep. The upper part, consisting of narrow planks laced together with cords of sinate, had in many places fallen off, and lay decaying upon the ground. Still there were ample accommodations left for sleeping, and in we sprang, the doctor into the bow, and I into the stern. I soon fell asleep, but waking suddenly, cramped in every joint from my constrained posture, I thought for an instant that I must have been prematurely screwed down in my coffin. Presenting my compliments to Longghost, I asked how it fared with him. Bad enough, he replied, as he tossed about in the outlandish rubbish lying in the bottom of our couch. Pa, how these old mats smell! As he continued talking in this exciting strain for some time, I at last made no reply, having resumed certain mathematical reveries to induce repose. But finding the multiplication table to no avail, I summoned up a grayish image of chaos in a sort of sliding fluidity, and was just falling into a nap on the strength of it, when I heard a solitary and distinct buzz. The hour of my calamity was at hand. One blended hum, the creature darted into the canoe like a small swordfish, and I out of it. Upon getting into the open air, to my surprise, there was Longghost fanning himself wildly with an old paddle. He had just made a noiseless escape from a swarm, which had attacked his own end of the canoe. It was now proposed to try the water, so a small fishing canoe hauled up nearby was quickly launched, 
and paddling a good distance off, we dropped overboard the native contrivance for an anchor, a heavy stone attached to a cable of braided bark. At this part of the island, the encircling reef was close to the shore, leaving the water within smooth and extremely shallow. It was a blessed thought. We knew nothing till sunrise, when the motion of our aquatic cot awakened us. I looked up, and beheld Zeke wading toward the shore, and towing us after him by the bark cable. Pointing to the reef, he told us we had had a narrow escape. It was true enough. The water sprites had rolled our stone out of its noose, and we had floated away. End of chapters 55 and 56 Recording by Tricia G.